Can you tell us a little bit about your friendship with your neighbour and, yeah. and how this book was inspired by him? I will do, yes. Thank you, Peter. He, he, um, we moved down to Devon, um, middle of Devon, middle of nowhere, equidistant between Exmoor and Dartmoor. Um, some of you will know it from a wonderful book by Henry Williamson called Tarka the Otter, where we live on Tarka's River. Uh, it's an, it really is the middle of nowhere. And anyway, I was walking along that very river over 50 years ago, um, minding my own business, and up from the river reared this figure in waders with a rod. Anyway, it was Ted Hughes. Well, I taught him at school, so I was kind of hugely in awe, both of the man and of the, uh, and of the poetry. He was terribly friendly. He was very sweet. What are you doing here? What are you doing? So I told him about the children that were going to come down to our farm from the inner cities, that my wife had found this charity, Farms for City Children. He was very interested. And he said, well, that's wonderful, because I was an urban boy, and I had my first experience of the countryside just walking up the road and up onto the high moors of in Yorkshire, and we immediately sort of, we felt we had a lot in common, and he, he came to tea afterwards, and we just talked, and we became really good friends. He became the first um, president of Farms for City Children, and became with his wife, Carol, dear friends, until his death, uh, all too young. Anyway, the wonderful thing about it was that I had the opportunity with him, and with another poet down the road, a man called Sean Rafferty, um, and the friends they brought down, people like Seamus Heaney and Basil Bunting and all these extraordinary people, and listened to them talking to each other, uh, sat at the feet, you could call it. And after a while, he started giving me, Ted Hughes did, manuscripts, this is the last thing I've written, what are you doing? And so I'd hand him a story that I'd written. He was wonderful with young writers, no matter how young or how inexperienced, and I was very inexperienced, he appreciated that you were trying because he'd been there, like all writers, we all remember when you start. And he was really kind, um, not always complimentary, but he was from Yorkshire. <laughs> um, no, he spoke as he felt, and um, I remember once I was having trouble, I was in the middle of a book called War Horse that I was writing, and I got stuck, as writers do. And I told him I got stuck, and he wasn't at all sympathetic. He said, well, you shouldn't have started. He <laughs> did. It's awful. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, no, no, it is a serious thing, Michael. You, you really must think a story through, dream it through so well, so thoroughly, that you know the place, you know the people, you know the history, that you never put yourself in a position where you're staring at a blank page and feeling, I can't go on, I can't go on. That does not mean to say you know what's going to happen. It does not mean to say you're just going to follow a boring path. It means you're so immersed in it that it will come. Um, and I've followed that ever since, and he, he was right. And the other thing he told me, which is wonderful, he said, um, never, never abandon a book. Because if you don't finish a book, the next one is so difficult both to begin and to finish. You lose confidence. The writing is, is all about confidence. And he's right about that too. So yes, we became very, very good friends. And I wanted, ever since I've known him really, I wanted to be a poet. I feel poetry is the, I don't know, it, 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 it was out of my reach. I like telling stories. I like telling stories because I was a really good liar at school. <laughs> I, I, I will prove it to you. Listen to me. I'm, I'm eight years old. I'm coming back from my prep school, my Hogwarts all those years ago in a little train, a steam train, coming back from East Grinstead into Victoria Station with a carriage full of 12 little boys, 
all of us with red, green and white blazers and the caps and we're all sitting there and we're all excited because we're all going home for the summer holes and we're all about to see our mums for the first time for 14 weeks. We were pretty excited, I can tell you, and everyone was boasting about whether we're going to go on their summer holidays. I'm going to Spain, I'm going to France, I'm going to Cornwall. I wasn't going anywhere. And so I said, well, I hope the train gets in by four o'clock because the Queen's coming for tea at five. <laughs> what is wrong with your response? <laughs> is that when I did it in the carriage, there was this wonderful moment of silence when all of these boys just went. <laughs> so I've been doing that ever since. Sorry, I, I digressed. <laughs> Sorry. My, my other question, that I, which sounds ridiculously arch, but... I'm going to ask it anyway. You tell stories about people in difficult situations and you have an amazing ability to convey human truths and animal truths, not just horses, but I know more about dogs from you than I do from my son's veterinary training. I, I am fascinated by the fact that this whilst there are there is animal life in it is profoundly a book which rides a moment that for you clearly is a long long moment of being engaged with nature and ecology yeah. and i wonder whether this feels like a moment when you want to go i'm now going to talk about the world not only through people's passage through it. I think, I think it was a moment, it, it wasn't that long ago. We all do remember the pandemic, don't we? And being inside our homes and, and quite solitary. Well, I was there with my wife, I get on really quite well with. Can I sort of, just, just on that very point, could we all, just for a second, take a moment to think about and then to have another round of applause for Michael and Claire Morpurgu, who have just celebrated 60 years of being married. The worst thing you could have done is to have drawn attention to that in front of my wife. And she's sitting at the back there going, oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> It's really cool. I've never met anybody who's been married for 60 years. No, I haven't either. I don't know how I managed it. <laughs> anyway, where was I? Why have you led me down the street? I was going quite well. Pandemic. You, pandemic. you were not down. Yes, I was in that pandemic. And it, of course, there's a horribly serious side to it. We weren't seeing family. Things were happening, dreadful things in the country. And we were very isolated, you know, all that. But for, for a writer, it sounds strange, but it was an extraordinarily enriching time because you were no more alone than you really are normally. It's, a very, it is quite a, an alone experience being a writer. But the difference is you had no excuses not to get on. You know, you just had to get on with it. That was your sanity, was getting on with the writing. And it was a certain moment, I was lying on my bed when I write. I write on my bed, pillows piled up behind me like Robert Louis Stevenson did. That's just why I did it. I thought if he can write Treasure Island, I'll do the same thing, I'll pile my pillows up. Anyway, I pile my pillows up, and it's wonderful, you relax, relax, but I, the view out of my window is straight onto the most familiar tree, an ash tree, 
um, that I've lived in that house 50 years. It's just always there, straight outside my bedroom, cottage window. And I was lying there, thinking, thinking, what do I want to get involved in, what do I want to get... And I looked at this tree. And I suddenly thought something about my relationship with nature. Um, and it's something that happened the morning before. Every morning, and this is probably one of the reasons why we've been married 60 years, I am the one who gets up first. This is the secret, gentlemen. Get up first. Let them lie abed. And I do it because I know she likes lying abed, but I also have a responsibility, which is to go out into the vegetable garden and pick kale. Because I was told by a dear friend of mine, I had a little cancer not long ago, and she said, when you are recovering, drink or eat kale every day and you'll live till 124. <laughs> so I've been religiously going out every morning and getting kale and I come back in and I make her and myself a smoothie for breakfast. I was out there one morning, early, quite early in the, in the year, it's when the kale was first starting to grow. Early spring, I guess, I don't know, March, April. And I was bending down to pick the kale and I heard this. So I look up and there's a blackbird singing from the tree. And so I go. And the blackbird goes. And I went. And she goes, he goes. So I went. We had a conversation. And it sounds silly. But there was. I think it's because I was beginning to feel nature around me, to answer your question, more intensely than I'd ever felt before. I was looking, I was listening, I was more aware, and I think there's a good reason for it. I spent about 30 years of my life going out on the farm into the countryside with children from the cities who come to farms for city children, this charity I was just mentioning. And I would go out with them, working with them on the farm, walking the countryside, seeing buzzards mewing, going down and seeing her herons as still as you like at the water's edge and the torridge. And I've been doing that. And all the time, I would be talking to the children about the countryside around them, explaining things, telling them stories, whatever. And I was suddenly thinking during this time, you're spending so much time talking about it, explaining it, that you stop looking yourself. You're not feeling it anymore. You've used it. And that experience of the blackbird in the garden, I made into a book, I called it A Song of Gladness. Have you got that in the bookshop? <laughs> I thought you had, isn't that surprising? <laughs> anyway, the point is that experience and the tree outside my window did make me think, just, just focus on this, focus on this and nothing else now. And um, so I decided to focus on something else. And that was to do something I'd never done before. I was age 77 when this happened. Write a poem. And I'd been too frightened to write poems all my life. I'd been too frightened. I really thought this was what it is. It's for the really great writers, in my view. That's what they do. And then I read, remembered a poem of Ted Hughes's, which I'm going to read that poem to them. Is that OK? Um, it's a poem of Ted Hughes's, which is my favorite poem of his. And it's very daring to read a poem of Ted Hughes and then to follow it with poems of your own, I promise you, but that's what I'm going to do. Um, this is a poem which made me write this book, which made me spend half a year writing poems about trees and animals. 
And it's this. Some of you will know it, I know. It's called My Own True Family. Once I crept in an oak wood, I was looking for a stag. I met an old woman there, all knobbly stick and rag. She said, I have your secret here inside my little bag. Then she began to cackle and I began to quake. She opened up her little bag and I came twice awake, surrounded by a staring tribe and me tied to a stake. They said, we are the oak trees and your own true family. We are chopped down, we are torn up, you do not blink an eye. Unless you make a promise now, now you are going to die. Whenever you see an oak tree felled, swear now you will plant too. Unless you swear the black oak bark will wrinkle over you and root you among the oaks where you were born but never grew. This was my dream beneath the boughs, the dream that altered me. When I came out, of the oakwood back to human company. My walk was the walk of a human child, but my heart was a tree. And that's why I called it My Heart Was a Tree. Just, just before asking you to just keep going, would you, would you say something about Yuval Sommer who yeah. has illustrated this book because it is a collaboration that uh, particularly enriched and I don't know whether you've worked with Yuval Sommer before but or whether you know him or about mm. I will no 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 I haven't it is entirely the publisher's idea to marry me with a, it is a bit like that an illustrator um, I knew his work because he's uh, very well known now and has got a unique voice in painting uh, and illustration um, I didn't meet him um, the poems were sent to him and he did the most extraordinary illustrations which kept coming through my um, email and I kept thinking this is going to be wonderful, this is going to be wonderful and then finally we did meet and we launched the book in an arts centre in Torrington in Devon um, which is very small but we planted a tree together to celebrate and um, made a good friendship together um, but the friendship really came through um, my appreciation I think of his art and I hope through his appreciation of the poems and we're going to do another book together. We're thinking of doing one about water, which seems to me to be quite important. Which is his idea, really. I do what I'm told. <laughs> okay, read us another story. The book was um, essentially just going to be a book of poems. And that's what I wanted it to be. But I thought after a while, no, 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 no. Because most of the, most of the poems are narrative poems. Well, they would be. That's sort of what I've been most of my life. And so sometimes I came out of verse and went into storytelling again. And I thought what I'd do is I'd read you one or two of the poems, um, see what you like. If you're still sitting here, I'll read you another one. And if you've gone out, then I'll read the story to those who... Shut up, Michael. <laughs> anyway, here's the first... I like this one. Um, and I'll tell you why. I'm sitting on a chair here, as you can see. I have a chair at home. I wish I brought it with me to show you where I sit. And it's a, it's a chair from the island of Orkney. Who's been to Orkney here? Put your hand up if you go. That's an awful lot of you. There aren't that many people I ever saw on Orkney. <laughs> Here's the thing. 
un Orkney, they do not grow trees. It doesn't happen because the wind howls across thousands of miles of sea. It doesn't happen. So the wood they get, both for their fires and for doing anything, is washed up on the beaches. And I was walking past a house one day, and a garage was open, and in the back of it I saw there was a man making a chair um, and planing. And so I walked in, and um, the seat was made of rushes, the back was made of rushes, but the frame of it was made of this beautiful, beautiful wood. I said, where'd you get that from? On the side, he said, no, I'm going to pick it up from the beach. And uh, it was just lovely. And then you sit on it. It's a very traditional thing. It goes back thousands of years, this sort of a chair. And you sit on it, and you're completely comfortable. And I thought, I will write a poem about how that wood got to be on Orkney. It's called, originally, Driftwood. This chair was born where I was born, in the forests of Nova Scotia, about a thousand years ago, maybe more, but who's counting? This chair has had as many lives as a cat, I know, because I am this chair. I made this chair what it is, what I am. This is the history of a chair of me. Call it my autobiography. First life. Which began the day I fell from a red oak tree, dropped and bounced into leaves, lay there for days, waiting, but didn't know for what nor why, until a jay came down, hopped over to me, picked me up in his beak, and off we flew. He buried me deep in the forest floor, covered me up, hid me from squirrels, but must have forgotten all about me, about where I was, which was fine for me, as you'll see, because I got to have a second life which was to be the luckiest life of my life. Dormant for a while, until there came a spring that warmed me through, that gave me longing, a longing for life that grew inside me like a burning hope, like a faithful promise. A green shoot broke me out of earth at last and began to make a sapling, then a tree of me. Deer nibbled elsewhere and let me grow, grow strong and tall up towards light and sun, towards a third life, which was long. As seasons came and went, falling of snow followed falling of leaves, till the sun came each spring to warm me through, and I grew ever taller, ever stronger, ever older. Branches spread, bark thickened, roots deepened, winter blew in, did its worst to all of us every year, lightning crackled and struck, but I lived to grow old. I dropped more acorns, shed more leaves, stood there still, till, wearied and weakened by the passing of age, I came to my fourth life, which I knew had to come one day, as it must to us all. It took a great and terrible storm to tear up my roots and blow me down. Long, long I lay there and thought of the forest life I'd had of the bears that stood up to scratch their backs against my trunk, of the squirrels who made their homes every year in me. But that was all over now. That was all done. All I could do was lie there and wonder if my family would still be standing, live long after me. I hoped there might be not an end, but a new life now for me, a fifth life, which there was but a change entirely of life, the end of me as tree, the beginning of me as wood. I remember 
how the loggers found me, walked and talked around and about me, climbed and clambered all over me, how they brought out their saws and took off my branches and trimmed my trunk, how horses hauled me away through the forest, floated me down swirling rapids to lie there in a boatyard to dry, where the people came to admire me, children to play and climb on me. You'll make the finest boat, they said, patting me, and so began my sixth life. As a fishing boat, I was to be mast, keel, hull, and decking too. They stripped off my bark and sawed me up. They planked me and planed me and made me boat. Sky blue, I was painted. Sky, they called me. I was pride of the port. The day I set sail, the band played. They bedecked me with flags. They cheered and they clapped. Their sky and their joy, I was, as I sailed out into wind and waves that heaved me and creaked me. But I'd been a tree... I knew how to be strong. Wind and sea were to be all the same to me in my seventh life. Also, I thought, I was the biggest, fastest boat they'd ever had. Everyone said so. I was sky. I was proud to be me, to be loved as I was. This was the life for me, the best a new life could possibly be. I was a lucky boat too. The fish and the gulls seemed to love me, follow me, so we filled our nets, and trip after trip came safely home, our barrels full, fish to eat, fish to sell. Sky had done it again. Happy days, happy years for them, for me. Unsinkable, they told me I was, and I thought so too, till the day we hit the iceberg and my eighth life began. On our way home, sailing along nicely, wind behind us, harbour and home in sight, but iceberg was waiting, lurking, unseen, sharp, slight as open, below the waterline left us sinking. They came out to save us, rowed out through the waves, and save us they did, everyone on board, not a soul lost. But they could not save me. Wave and tide and wind drifted me in, dashed me on rocks, broke me in pieces, sky was lost. I was lost, which brings me to my ninth life of flotsam and jetsam. Most of me sunk except the keel. Tide took me out, what was left of me, and floated me out to sea where wild storms took me and tossed me and turned me and brought me at last to a strange treeless shore, washed me up on a sandy beach in amongst the cowrie shells. She was searching for cowries and found me there, the remnants of the keel of me took me in, dried me and cared for me, carved me fondly, sanded me too, made an orkney chair of me, sits on me, and tells her children the story of me as driftwood, where I came from, how I came to be here, and chair, told them all the nine lives of me. I listen too, as they do over and over again. I love her story, my story. I hope you have too. If you, if, you do, if you do go to Orkney just go and sit on one of those chairs it's just extraordinary I'll tell you can I go on or do you want to shut up so not um, I was having to choose or wanting to choose particular trees like the one outside the window things that, trees that have meant a lot to me Many of you will know uh, a picture painted by Van Gogh of an almond tree in blossom. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
with a blue sky and this amazing blossom. It's one of the most beautiful pictures of a tree I've ever seen. And it just is in my head as I'm talking to you now. But I discovered something about it which some of you may not know. I, th I think it was a gift to his godson and his nephew. Um, but it ended up, I believe, in some university collection in America. And some art expert was examining it. And as they examined it minutely, they came across something in the paint that he had used and discovered when they analysed it that it was a piece of blossom. <laughs> Excuse me, Mr Van Gogh, I'm going to write a poem about that. <laughs> so I called it A Whisper of Blossom. For those of you who are young and you may not know about Van Gogh, towards the end of his life, for most of his life, he had, um, he had mental health problems uh, very severely and he was in a hospital at this time near a place called Arles in the south of France. Um, uh, he volunteered to go and he went in and, but he was very alone and very sad and he'd walk the garden and this blossom tree was in the garden that's really all you need to know about him it's called a whisper of blossom he was the strangest one the kindest too the only one of them who stayed to talk most passed me by with lowered head scarce a glance this one looked up at me, smiling eyes from a sad face, stood there, spoke to me, reached out his hand to choose me. Then all in a morning he painted a picture, a picture of me. As he painted away breathlessly, this is what he said. You are the loveliest of trees in the world to me, and I am the happiest of painters this clear, bright morning. You are dressed over all in blossom, as white as the sky is blue. You were born to be you, and I was born to paint you. And born to be with us is a faraway godson, my little Vincent, a third birth to bring us all together. I shall paint you for Vincent, send you to him on canvas. He will wake up each morning and see you there. You will bring him joy and he will smile at you. You will live again, blossom again, and so will I. He will never have seen you, but he will love you. He will never remember me, but he may still love me. I will paint you as I see you, as I feel you are. Not the blossom you show, but the friend I know. You have been my dear companion through darkest days, who cared and comforted me through longest nights, promised me that joy will come with the morning, and this morning, so it has, so it has. You are the friend little Vincent will love all his life. I will live on in you, and you will live on in me. A whisper of blossom, did you see, floated down from you, fell onto my brush, into the paint, is part of you now forever. We shall be immortal, you and I. Blossom always together. Together we shall watch over Vincent. Keep him company, keep him safe.
And now, quite an angry poem. I like to change moods. This is an angry poem about what we are doing to the world in terms of the destruction of forests and trees. And perhaps you might talk a little bit afterwards about the work that he's about to be entering in in terms of trees. But this is someone I called the Three Trillion Trees. And if I say it in an angry voice, that's because the mood was in my heart when I wrote it. Over all the earth, there are three trillion of us, say 400 trees for every one of you. Just want to remind you that, therefore, we outvote you, outgrow you, outspecies you. There are 70,000 kinds of us, but one in three of us faces extinction. Right now, thought you should know this, understand this, go on this way and you will wipe us all out. The trouble is you are very good at extinction, the world's leading experts in species destruction. We don't do that. We never have. We just grow. In growing, we look after each other, Mother Earth and you. Without us, the planet will warm itself to death. Without us, the air you'll breathe will choke you. We protect your shores, we bring you rain, we sustain you, but only so long as you sustain us. We bear the fruit which bears our seeds, makes our future. We feed the monkeys and the honeybees and the frogs and you. We are home to tiger and bear and orangutan, panda and possum, moose and wild boar. They live with us, hide in us, hide from you. We cannot hide from you. We would if we could. So, let's make a promise, shall we? Let's call a truce. We live for you, and you live for us. Deal, and let us, all of us, live for Mother Earth, who will love us all if we love her too. Tell us about your trees. Oh. <laughs> About five years ago, I was working with an, an organization called the European Festivals Association, which is a gathering of 360 festivals across Europe. And they asked me if I would come up with something that everybody could do together to try and respond to climate change. And we went through hoops and circles and meetings and more meetings and... Ah, ah, ah. And eventually we said, we've looked at everything and what we should do very simply, once you've reduced your waste and changed your energy supply and tried to fly less, is to plant trees. And we looked at where to plant trees and what kind of trees and we found these fantastic people in Iceland. And there are three reasons that Iceland is a magical place to plant trees. The first reason is that their glaciers are melting. And for the first time in as long as humankind can remember, the land there is green, not white, all the way through the year. They've had their 1.5 degrees of climate change already in the last 25 years. The second reason is that in 2010, some of you may remember, that there was an extraordinary volcanic eruption. And 
all the aeroplanes in Europe were shut down for eight days. And also in Iceland, the stuff that came out of the volcano then landed all over the island and made that newly melted, newly thawed ground incredibly alluvially rich with new minerals. And it became really good for planting trees. And the very clever people in Iceland saw climate change coming 70 years ago because there was simply more of it that wasn't snow-covered all year. So they started planting trees and we started working with them. And the third reason that Iceland is such a great place to plant trees is Iceland has no squirrels. <laughs> Not a squirrel has ever set foot in Iceland, which is really great for saplings. And we decided to try and get all the festivals across Europe to say, Everyone who comes to a festival is an activist, is somebody who cares about the conversation. So maybe those people would also like to help us plant trees. And we said, if you, if you all get together, we can bring all these costs down so that a tree planted in Iceland that will last for between 60 and 200 years only costs two euros because the Icelandic government will meet us and join us as partners, and therefore we can all, we can sequester a ton of metric carbon, which is a vast amount of metric carbon, for six euros. So we got people to come, and people all over Europe for the last year have been saying, yes, we will donate two euros, which is uncannily close to two pounds. Um, don't even start me. Uh, or indeed, Michael. Um, and we set this thing up. So should you, any of you, <laughs> wish to help us and donate a tree, just go to festivalsforest.eu and you can donate and join tens of thousands and in future hundreds of thousands of people from across Europe who are planting trees. Thank you very much, Michael Moore. Isn't that good? Thank you. Can I read him a story now? Yes, please. They want to go to sleep, really. Yeah. Um, I wrote this... Um, let me see why I wrote it. I'll just read it. It's called Our Tree of Hope. For the people of Ukraine and for refugees everywhere. We used to play in the park, build our snowmen there, have picnics under our favourite tree, a weeping willow tree it was. Papa often called it our family tree. I could reach up and stroke the green of her leaves in summer, the gold of her twigs in winter. But then we had no park. We had craters instead. Then we had no tree. We had a wreck of a tree instead, a shattered, splintered trunk, a broken crown of golden twigs. We used to have a town. We used to have a home. But then we had ruins and rubble instead. I used to have a father, but he went to the war and we didn't know where he was. We lived in a basement. Every bomb that fell shook my bones, made Mama hold me ever tighter. There was no more food, there was no water to drink, but the rainwater from the puddles outside. In the basement, we sometimes sang songs so we didn't have to hear the planes coming over, the sound of gunfire in the distance, the sound of moaning and crying. We sang so we didn't cry ourselves. We were in that basement for two weeks. It wasn't all a nightmare. We came out into the daylight sometimes when there was a pause in the bombing. 
There was sun and cold, fresh air then, and often the brightness of new snow. We breathed it all in. There were dogs wandering around looking for food. Some of the houses were not even there. They'd been disappeared. Every time we went out, we walked back home and searched the ruins for anything we could find. One day I found Papa's penknife in the rubble, and Mama found the headscarf Papa, Papa had given her the Christmas before the invasion happened, before the Russians came, before our whole world changed. The scarf was covered in dust and hardly recognisable. She was holding it to her face and crying into it. I put my arms around her, but I didn't cry. I was too sad to cry these days. A shell fell on the outskirts of town. The ground shook, but I hardly bothered anymore. I got used to the fear in the end, numbed by it, perhaps. Mama had got through these dark times, I think, by worrying about me and Papa, and I had got through by worrying about her and Papa. Worry is useful. It distracts you when you're hungry and thirsty and cold and sad. Sad I never got used to. It saddened my heart every time we walked by our fallen tree. I never passed it without reaching out and stroking her golden crown of twigs. I was doing just that one early morning, wondering at the beauty of our family tree, even in death, how she glowed in the sunlight. That was the moment Mama told me, we are leaving, Katya, today, now, don't be upset. Papa will know where to find us. If the worst came to the worst, and with the Russians shelling us like they are, it couldn't be much worse. We agreed that you and I should leave, and the time has come. I wasn't too upset. Most of my school friends had left long ago. Anything was better than living in the basement, waiting for the next bomb to fall. I just wanted to get away from the shelling, get away from the Russians. Where can we go? I asked her. Where will we live? England. You have your Aunt Annetta living there and your Uncle Robert. They want us to come and live with them until we can find a place of our own. But I wasn't paying that much attention to her. All I was thinking about was that I wanted to take something from Ukraine with me, something that was living, part of the land, part of my country. I took out Papa's penknife and told Mama what I wanted to do. You told me once, Mama, that all you had to do to grow a willow tree like our family tree was to cut off a golden twig and plant it in the soil, make sure it was watered and it would grow like magic, you said. That's what I want to do, Mama. She helped me choose the right golden twig from our family tree. I held it while she cut it. I picked up a handful of Ukrainian earth, pressed it into a plastic cup we found lying nearby and pushed the cutting deep in. Back in the basement, we wrapped it in a plastic bag and put it carefully into a side pocket of my rucksack. That cutting came in my rucksack with us all the way from home through Poland to Germany to France to England and at last to Aunt Annetta's and Uncle Robert's house in Exeter where I now live for the moment with Mama. We had quite a journey, I can tell you. We had to fill out more forms than how do you say it in England, then you've had hot dinners. On the first evening we were there, we planted the willow cutting from our home in their lawn. I watered it every day and already it's taken root. Mama was quite right. It is magic. I go to school here now, speak English much better than Mama. I have English friends, lots of them. I sing in the school choir and last week the choir sang the Ukrainian National Anthem in Assembly 
and that did make me cry. Papa is still at the war. We phone each other often. They are doing well, he says, and they will fight on until the invader is driven out and sent home with all these tanks and guns. It may take a while, he said in his last call, and I must be patient. I'm not very good at being patient, but I'll try. I'm impatient to see him, to show him our little Ukrainian willow tree and the English robin that perches on her and sings his heart out. I'm impatient for our tree to grow tall and strong, just like the family tree in our park at home in Ukraine. Our tree is flourishing here. I am too, Mama, Mrs. Papa. I, I do too. We love it here, but we miss home. We will go back home one day soon, Mama says, to a free country, and Papa will be waiting for us. And meanwhile, we have our little reminder of Ukraine in the garden here, growing in Ukrainian earth and English earth. I like that. I love that. She is our tree of hope. I'll read one from here. Or not, or not. Well, read, read one from there, and then we have five minutes for questions. Oh, should we do, do questions now? They're not done. Yes, let's. Um, if you'd like to ask a question, particularly if you're under 70 years old, uh, don't hold me to it, um, please could you just put up a hand and we'll bring you a microphone. They tend to work best if you hold them about three or four inches away from your mouth, um, and then everyone will be able to hear you. Uh, if, if nobody has a question... They will have, they're bound to have. Yes, there's one here. Sorry, just down here in the peach. Um, lovely to um, see you, Michael. Uh, not really a question, really. I just wanted to sort of tell you. Um, I was listening one Saturday morning um, to Radio 4, and you were on the Today programme, and you read you, your poem, from your book. I think, I think it was... Um, about the yew tree. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you remember that interview, yeah, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, I do. I remember the poem, too. Really, yeah. good, really good poem. It was really lovely. <laughs> yeah, obviously. But, yeah, it's not really a question. I just want to tell you, really, just to say that you inspired me. I am... Um, I belong to a writing group, but my, I incline more towards prose. Yeah. And uh, so I do write poetry. Yes. But that very morning, listening to you on Radio 4, yeah. as I was lying in bed in Staffordshire, um, you inspired me. I um, wrote about um, a poem um, called really nice Sycamore. Um, so I'm just saying, you know, for all of our creative writers out of here, I think it's that really nice you, you do say inspire so. us. So I inspired you yeah, Sycamore, in the same way as I, I was inspired by Ted Hughes. Yeah, and, and I'm and quite I'm sure Ted Hughes was inspired by Shakespeare. So indirectly, <laughs> Shakespeare. Yeah. But just to say, Shakespeare has suddenly thank crept you. into this room. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to say Bless you inspired thank me. You. Think more. Thank you for coming along and saying so. I'll pay you later. Yep. <laughs> Question. Question just down here. Sorry, just down here in the second row. If there's anybody further back, do please just wave. Hello. I just want, want to say that my favourite book is Alone on a Wide, Wide Sea. Oh, good. 
Um, and also, what music do you write to? Do you write mu- to, you know, do you write your poetry and your beautiful books to music? And if so, what music? Um, first of all, I'm glad you like Alone on a Wide, Wide Sea. Um, I adore but, it. Good. But that, it, it, um, I, I always pinch other people's um, words for titles. And Alone on a Wide, Wide Sea, as we know, comes from a, quite a, a decent poem. <laughs> A narrative poem. Do any of you know where it comes from? Alone on a wide, wide sea. Do any of you know? You will know. You're just shy of being clever. Tell me what it is. The Ancient Mariner. By did I write that? Yes. No. Anyway, that's where it comes from. Alone on a wide, wide sea. I'm really, really. I really love that story. I love it because it 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 it, it covers the globe. I love stories that. How shall I say? Engage with one period in history and then come up to today that start in Britain and that end in Australia and then come back. I love the way stories can take you around the world. I always loved that when I was young. So I'm really pleased you like that book. Have you got a copy at home? I, I don't, but I have it on Audible. Well, go and, and buy I... another one, for goodness sake. <laughs> How's a writer supposed to live if you just like the book? And, unless I she bought it on Audible. I bought it on Audible. Unless you can give it to me in Braille, then I'll have it. <laughs> I will arrange that for you. That's for sure. Oh. <laughs> I'm so I'm so pleased you've liked it. It's really wonderful. And the second part I of your question, it. which wasn't a question, was something else. What well, was very nice. I'm going to go on because you were saying such nice things. So what was the second thing? About music. Do you write to your books and poetry um, to music? I have so written. What? Many, many books with music behind me, but one in particular is called The Mozart Question. Have you read this book? No. No. Well, anyway, try to get it. I'm sure it's in Braille somewhere. But um, it's, it's a story about the power of music to sustain us in difficult times. Do you know about those orchestras that in the dreadful times of the Second World War, the Nazis forced to play in concentration camps? They would put these poor people who were musicians, good musicians too, and their ability to play music very often saved them from the gas chambers. But they would sit them down in the freezing cold and they would play music so that when people arrived on those dreadful trains, they thought they were coming to something that was... And Mozart, I gather, was played massively then because it's the kind of music that calms the soul. And I always wondered, when I heard the story of those orchestras, how it would be if you played in such an orchestra and you played that glorious music and you survived and you came home, could you ever listen to it again? What would be the effect on So I wrote a story about that. It's called The Mozart Question. And it's as good as Alone on a Wide, Wide Sea. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your... Um, if, if, if there... Oh, yes, there is another question. Up, up the back there. Um, just throw it behind again for the mic. Hello, thanks so much. I just want to ask about your kind of creativity and your inspiration. And could you just tell, tell us a little about what it's like for you to kind of find a new story and think of a new thing to write about and how that kind of comes to you and... and do you look for the stories or, no. or do they find you? No, thank you, you for the question. It's a really good one and I, I'm not sure I can give you a good answer but I can give you what I feel about it. I think I'm of the, of the opinion 
because I spent quite a lot of time as, my, as a teacher uh, trying to teach primary school children to find their voice as writers. And what I discovered was that you have to expose yourself to new things in life all the time. That is people, it's nature, it's travel, it, whatever it is. And allow these influences, these impressions, to sort of store up in the harvest, really, that you, you've gathered during your life. And it's from um, the harvest that you've gathered by looking and learning and listening that the inspiration comes. But sometimes it's true, it does come from just moments, just moments, when you hear someone say something. So I can tell you right now, the, the book I've, I've written, which I think was, is probably the, the best known, purely because it was made into a, a big movie. It was actually a, quite a decent book before that happened. <laughs> but there we are. Um, anyway, th that book, War Horse, came from just a conversation in a pub, which we all have. I went to a pub one day, and for those of you who ever come to Devon, go to the Duke of York in Iddesley and sit in the chair by the fire and talk. And what actually happens is that in conversation, stuff comes up. And I was there over 40 years ago now, and there was an old bloke sitting there, and I knew there were three old blokes in the village, octogenarians, all of them, and we're talking a long time ago now, of course. And three of them had been to the First World War, and I knew I was talking to one of them. We were new to the village, I didn't know him well. His name was Wilf Ellis, and he was just sitting there uh, by the fire, nursing a pint. So I sat down beside him, and um, I had known about his being in the First World War. I was already interested in the First World War through the poetry of the war, um, and the books on the First World War as well. So I said to him, um, you at the First World War, Wilf? And he said, yep. <laughs> this is how talkative people are in Devon sometimes. <laughs> and so I said, um, what regiment were you in? And he goes, Devon the Almondry. <laughs> it really wasn't going very far. And then the extraordinary thing was, I have no idea why, without a question, he just started. He talked to me, that man, for an hour and a half, without ceasing. Um, told me how it was to be 17, to go down the road and volunteer and find himself. He'd only ever been as far as Crediton, 15 miles away, and found himself in France, fighting some people called Germans. He'd never met a German in his life. And he was in the trenches, and he was in a cavalry regiment, but he was now on foot because they weren't using the horses so much. But there were times when they did. And he said, I was, I was frit. All the time I was awake and I was frit when I was asleep. And I only had one friend, and that was my horse. So, so I, I talked to him. Very slowly he talked, I talked to him. And I went out to feed him at night, horse lines. I put my hand on his neck and I'd, I'd tell him about my poem about my mum and how I, I, couldn't, I couldn't be here anymore, how I hated this and I was going to run away, all these things. Because he couldn't tell anyone else. He said, you couldn't really talk about what you felt deep down to all your pals because they felt exactly the same thing. So I was given 
in an hour and a half conversation. All I needed in any research to find out how it was. I didn't need to read Wilfred Owen again or Siegfried Sassoon, wonderful though they are. I had it from this man who had never written a word in his life, but he'd been there. I'd met this man who'd been there. And it wasn't fiction, and it wasn't poetry, it was just straight. And that's what gave me the idea of telling the story of the First World War, I think it was for the first time, um, through a neutral observer, the horse. So the horse is a British cavalry horse, grows up in my village on a farm, is sold away uh, to British cavalry, goes off to the war, is captured very soon by the German army, used to pull ambulances and guns, winters on a French farm. So you see, the, if you like, the civilian point of view. I wanted to write a book which is about the universal suffering of war, finally. That's what it was about. And, uh, and about reconciliation. I mean, the most important scene in the whole book is, as you know, if you've either uh, seen the play or read the book, it is when a German meets a, a Tommy out in no man's land, tosses for the horse. And um, actually, the best line in the whole book. You don't mind if I tell you the best line in the whole book, do you? <laughs> the best line in the whole book. I'm not interested in the book, actually, whether it's just in the film. But anyway, they, they, they decide they're going to toss for it. And um, they, the, the German called Tails. And it lands down, and it's heads. And he looks at it, and he goes, I think my Kaiser will not be very pleased with me. <laughs> I thought, yeah. Anyway, I loved writing it, and it all comes from an old bloke in a pub. And um, so that's the kind of thing. It's little, little, little things. It's not great big. And you know why that story from Ukraine happened. You know, I read a diary by a wonderful um, Ukrainian girl who's now living in, refugees living in Dublin, called Yeva. And I met her, and I wrote the introduction to her book, and it was about growing up and in that town that was attacked and leaving it with her granny and what had happened to her across Europe. It's reading other people's things, talking to other people, going places, really. That's all it is. It's not, it really isn't, um, it's not clever. It's just keeping your ears open and your eyes open, and in particular, your heart open. That's the thing that people very often do, I think, as they get older. You close up to defend yourself, to protect yourself from pain. And you mustn't and you can't, and writers shouldn't. We, we, are, we are sort of out of time, but um, there's an old, old um, theatrical saying which sort of adapts quite well to today, which is that it ain't over till the great night sings. Here's my hint. Your cue. Could you do something for me? Is there a lock on that door at the back? <laughs> Could, could, could you just turn it and stand guard? No one is to leave. <laughs> yeah, you're going to get a song. And if you don't behave, I'll sing you two songs. <laughs> I'm coming round because I was told the microphone is better here and I'd sound more like Frank Sinatra if I sang here. Ha could I ask you this question? Hands up those of you who did see the play of Warhorse. I'm really impressed with this town. <laughs> Hands That's up incredible. Those of you who did not see it, <laughs> put up your hands if you did not see it. Well, shame on you. <laughs> It'll come back. It'll come back. Anyway, I'm 
We did actually specifically round up the only people in Britain who have not seen it to be here today. Well, look, this is a song from the play. That's why I said it. it's a song from the play. Um, usually it's sung by 25 people. Today you're going to get it me, a cappella. So um, there we are. That's just life. It's, um, I'm very fond of it, and it's very connected to what we've been talking about in terms of nature. Because it's about seasons, seasons coming, seasons going, what they do to us, how we feel about it as life moves on, and how the, there is always hope. It's called barleycorn. No, no, it always happens when I sing something. No. If you notice how those opera singers sometimes, they always got a handkerchief in their hand. Have you noticed that? <laughs> What's the name of that opera singer who does that? Big white handkerchief which he flashes around, you know. Now I know what it is. It, what's he called? Pavarotti. Yeah, this is Pavarotti stuff, really. Um, it's not, it's because like, it's you dribble and you've got to do something about it. And the whole notion of Pavarotti dribbling is so awful. Anyway, I'll read you this. I'm so sorry, I'm taking time rubbishing. It's only because I'm getting nervous about starting. Cruel winter cuts through like the reaper, the old year lies withered and slain, and like barley corn who rose from the grave, a new year will rise up again, and the snow falls, the wind calls, the year turns round again. And like barley corn who rose from the grave, a new year will rise up again. And I'll wager a hatful of guineas against all of the songs you can sing that some day you'll love and the next day you'll lose and winter will turn into spring. Ploughed, sown, reaped and mown, the year turns round again. And like barley corn, who rose from the grave, a new year will rise up again. I will garland a bonnet of daisies to crown you the queen of the May. And all shall behold the seasons unfold as surely as night follows day. Phoebe, her eyes are gleaming, her eyes, the year turns round again. And like barley corn who rose from the grave, a new year will rise up again. And there will come a time of great plenty, a time of good harvest and sun. Till then put your trust in tomorrow, my friend, for yesterday's over and done. And the snow falls, the wind calls, the year turns round again. And like barley corn who rose from the grave, a new year will rise up again.
Thank you. Thank you so much for such a wonderful session. And can we finish off with a last round of applause for Michael Morcone? <laughs>